News. I'm Anthony. And I'm Alex. And my first story today is health news. This is from NPR. The headline is, Coronavirus sparks new interest in using ultraviolet light to disinfect indoor air. Did you know that was something you could do? Because I did not. (laughs) No, I did not. Yeah. I finally have something to do with all these ultraviolet lights I have. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm going to tell you exactly how you can set them up to disinfect the air in your house. That's not really what it tells you to do. Oh. I was joking. Oh. But maybe somebody will make a system like that. Anyway, (laughs) research has shown in the past that germicidal UV can effectively inactivate airborne microbes that transmit measles, tuberculosis, and SARS-CoV-1, a close relative of the novel coronavirus. Now, with concern mounting that the coronavirus may be easily transmitted through aerosols, some researchers and physicians hope that this technology can be recruited yet again to help disinfect high-risk indoor settings. As the U.S. grapples with how to interrupt the spread of the highly infectious virus, UV is being used already to decontaminate surfaces on public transit and in hospitals where infectious droplets may have landed, um, like on surfaces. Mm. But so far, using this technology to provide continuous air disinfection has remained outside of most mainstream conversations about the coronavirus. And they said that experts attribute that to just a combination of factors, um, one of which is misconceptions about um, UV safety and just like a lack of public awareness that this is an option. Hmm. Um, So aerosols are defined as micro droplets that are expelled when someone exhales, speaks, or coughs. Unlike the larger and heavier respiratory droplets that can fall quickly to the ground, aerosols can linger in the air for long periods of time and travel through indoor spaces, which is why, like, being inside with a bunch of people is more risky than being in, like, an outdoor setting with a bunch of people, right. basically. Um, which we probably know from reading things already. But in case you didn't, that's true. <laughs> stay outside. Uh, or, stay- well, stay inside, but also... Stay, Wait, stay 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 away from people <laughs> as much as possible but if you have to go someplace it's just it's just a fact to know that like if you're in a building with a bunch of other people that the, the risk is slightly higher yeah anyway so um as the science continues to evolve uh uv could emerge as an attractive safeguard against airborne transmission um because it does have a track record against previous pathogens um, and it could be used or it could be deployed to cut down the um, the risk of aerosols accumulating in indoor settings, such as schools, public buildings and businesses. So then th- this article actually talks about some examples of where people are already starting to try this. Um, and they a couple of the examples they had were restaurant owners that actually installed it like in the restaurant. Um, and they talked about how that worked. So what they do is they install the system actually like up by the ceiling and it's like the lights are angled away from, I mean, they're like angled up, I guess, or like horizontally. And then they have some type of like grate under it with like fans or whatever. And it's just like, they just circulate the air and the air will like go up there and be disinfected by the UV lights oh, as it circulates. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that makes a ton of sense to have a system like that. Yeah. Um, and so that type of setup is called upper room germicidal UV or upper GUV. So... Up a gov. Yeah, up, up a gov. Um, yeah, so that that's all it is. So you just have to install, like you know, the fans and the just the lights in the right place, and mm-hmm. obviously make sure they're safely like away from where somebody couldn't actually look at it or something. But right. Um. But yeah. So, uh, research has shown that close to ninety percent of airborne particles from a previous coronavirus, which was the SARS-CoV-1, 
can be inactivated in about 16 seconds when exposed to this strength of UV, like in one of these sealing systems. Um, so basically, it could be very useful. Um, but, you know, they, they did point out that it's not like this magical solution or anything because it doesn't prevent, like, being exposed to aerosols if you're, like, right next to a person and right. they just came out of the person. Then, right. like, that doesn't help anything. It's, it's yeah, more like... um it keeps anything from like lingering in the space. Uh huh. So. All right. So I have a great idea from this. What? What? What if we make everyone wear a tube on their face <laughs> that just like extends out from your and face, it, and it just goes up, and it and it like has UV light in it that goes like into the tube. And then before the air can get out before from you, before it can get in the, into tube, it will because be, it has to be long enough that it dies before it gets out of the tube. Yeah, so it's like, okay, so if we were all wearing, it's almost like a snorkel. Like if you're wearing like a snorkel, yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of that has a UV filter, mm-hmm. and so no air coming out of your you can get into the surrounding air without going through a exactly. UV filter. Yeah, <laughs> that's genius. I can't think. I can't think of anything simpler to wear than that. <laughs> can help prevent the spread of a communicable yeah, disease. Yeah, I mean, I mean... There's nothing. It's just... <laughs> literally, any solution or any just help needs to be so complicated, like, yeah. and hard. And so... It, yeah. Our yeah. own personal UV scuba, scuba system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to submit that to NPR. I mean, yeah. like, that'd be... That'd be great. Yeah. Um, We've been looking for so long for some wearable technology... That, that would just help individuals. Yeah. You know? And like and the community at large. And right. It's, this is clearly it. We have to get this idea out there. Yeah. <laughs> it couldn't possibly be masking a simpler solution. <laughs> My first story is technology news. This is from CNN. Scientists strapped a tiny camera to a beetle to test just how small video technology can get. How how small was the camera? I'm about, I'm about okay. to tell you. Ooh. Actually, they don't say the dimensions of the camera, but they do say what? how much it weighed. So. Okay. Anyway, scientists have developed a tiny wireless camera that can ride on the back of an insect, giving users a bug's eye view of the world. Research. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> Researchers at the University of Washington in the U.S. developed the technology to test the potential of miniature cameras. Uh, their device weighs about 250 milligrams, which is around one-tenth the weight of a playing card, for context, so it's pretty wow. pretty light. Okay. Um, they, sh- they had, like, a picture of a beetle wearing it, and it was, I mean, it was a pretty small beetle, so... Hmm. All right. Uh, it streams video to a smartphone at one to five frames per second. So, like, not a 60 frames per second situation, but it'll do in a pinch, I guess. Uh, <laughs> sitting on a mechanical arm that can pivot 60 degrees, the black and white camera, so it's also not full color, uh, allows oh, a viewer no. to capture a high-resolution panoramic shot or track a moving object. So... Yeah, some limitations. It's going downhill fast. Yeah, it doesn't have great. Like it. <laughs> it doesn't have a great uh, FES, and it's not uh, in color. So but. one frame per second yeah. was the lower range or the lower. Yeah, end of that it's going to look pretty choppy, probably. That's um, very choppy. Yeah, yeah. So, 
It's like okay. typical television up until recently is 30 frames per second, 60 frames per second is I think getting closer to being the standard now. Mm. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, the camera and arm are controlled via Bluetooth from a smartphone, which can be up to 120 meters away. Uh, it currently requires batteries, but the researchers are looking at creating a version that uses other forms of power. I don't know, presumably like solar or something would make sense for this application. The team said that they hope their device could be used to explore novel or remote environments and serve biological purposes, uh, but they have also raised the prospect of covert surveillance that would be difficult for subjects to detect, and they acknowledge the privacy concerns of a camera this small, which is, you know, it's good that they at least acknowledge that mm -hmm. this could be used for some unsavory things. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it is kind of cool just to see how tiny the technology is. Uh, the one yeah, thing I wish cool. they'd included in the article was, like, an example of the video that it takes. Oh. They didn't. It's yeah. It's just two pictures of the beetle wearing the camera. Oh. Looking, I mean, very fashionable, but it's not super useful. <laughs> Wait, sorry. Did I miss something? Why did they put it on a beetle? <laughs> That's a good question, actually. Because <laughs> it kind of glazed over the fact they just said it was, like, to show how small the camera can get. It didn't really need to go on a beetle. Beetle for size. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> beetle okay. for scale. Oh yeah, beetle for scale. That's what I meant to say. That's what it beetle looks like scale. on the beetle. Oh, so it's not in like a little case or anything yet. Yeah, they're just. This is just kind of a proof of concept, I imagine. I'm just like, wait, why did they choose a beetle to put it on? Maybe they just really wanted to see what a beetle gets up to every day. Yeah. Haven't you always wondered? Maybe that's they started out doing that, and then it was like really boring, and then they just didn't really comment on what the beetle did. Maybe that's why they didn't show the footage. It's like, oh, <laughs> this beetle's just like looking at a log on or a something, stick. or yeah, just hanging out <laughs> for with a like stick twelve all hours, <laughs> not really doing anything. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why. <laughs> beetle moves like three feet in a whole day, and they were like, maybe this was the wrong insect to put the camera. On. You heard it here first, folks. Beetles are so boring. <laughs> <laughs> My next story is food news. This is from Delish.com. Lately, I've been getting a lot of food news from Delish.com, and I kind of like, like them. The headline is, This gin is made with fresh botanicals from the Buckingham Palace Garden. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. A fancy girl. <laughs> The, ro <laughs> the Royal Collection Trust is releasing a London dry gin that's made with several ingredients sourced from the Buckingham Palace Garden. This premium small batch gin is made with 12 different botanicals. Lemon ver verbana, ver verbana. Verbana? I never verbana? know how to pronounce that. It's always in soap. Yeah, it's just soap. I, I always say verbana, but I don't this know. This gin tastes like soap. <laughs> <laughs> Lemon verbana, hawthorn berries, bay leaves, and mulberry leaves from the garden are all used in the production and flavoring of this gin. Okay, it said only, there were 12 and that was only four. Definitely they only, only listed four. four. I don't know. All right. Maybe they used um, them each three times. <laughs> well, maybe the other ones weren't sourced from the palace garden. Who knows? I don't know. I could have done more research. I did not. Sorry. Um, it probably wasn't worth your time. <laughs> <laughs> the gin has an ABV of 42%. Oh, it my. In a 23-ounce bottle. For $50, you can order one. Unfortunately, they're only available for delivery in the UK at this time. Oh, darn. So 
what you could do is get it shipped to your friend, if you have a friend that lives in the UK, and then have them ship it to the US (laughs) if you want this gin. (laughs) Um, Along with being available online, the Buckingham Palace gin will be served at official events at the palace. So they're going to be drinking it too. So So you can feel like royalty. It's literally a royal beverage. Drinking your soap gin. I know it doesn't taste like soap. I just well, what if it does taste like soap? No one know. would complain. Everyone would just pretend like it was amazing. Right, not in front of the queen. Right, she made this herself. Um, all the proceeds from the sale of this gin will benefit the Royal Collection Trust, a registered charity that works on exhibitions, publications, loans, and educational programs in the UK. Um, so yeah, I just thought this was fun because if we wanted to drink like royalty, we could find some way to obtain this. Do you gin. have any friends in London or the UK? I Do was, I? There's more to the UK. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but I'm sure I could find someone. Wait, you don't? <laughs> you don't know? No, I actually have like really, really extended family that lives in in the UK. Oh, okay. I actually do. Okay, but <laughs> but say, I feel like if, if I you contacted don't know them, if you have a friend there, you probably don't have. A no, friend I, there. I have, it's my my grandfather's brother's son's family who i've met one time in my life so gotcha <laughs> that's who i know in the uk <laughs> so if you really need this gin you could maybe open that connection yeah. <laughs> i don't know i don't like That'd gin be, i don't like i gin, don't really like, like gin either all. but i just really was attracted to the like royal botanicals ingredients oh, I like i just like want to own this just because J- yeah it would if be i'm fun, going to but... have gin i want it to be fancy royal gin right yeah, because I don't really like gin, and I probably wouldn't even drink it. I probably would just, like, have it. Just to look at it. And just, like, have, yeah. Maybe I could just get a replica bottle, fill it with Wait, water, and it would yeah, basically so be the same thing. That's what we need to do. Yeah. That's what we need to do. Because it tastes icky. Here, this is what the this is what the label looks like. Let's just, like, recreate that, make it, it on a bottle, mm. and then put blue-tinted, like, water in it. Oh, is it slightly blue? Oh, is, that might just be the bottle. I'm not sure. Be, yeah. Because it's a it's a clear liquid. Yeah, we don't need to we don't need it. We, we can don't just, need, yeah. We just can get just a fancy it. bottle and we'll figure it out. Just say no. This is our royal gin. Don't taste it. <laughs> yeah, we don't drink that. That's just on the shelf. We'll put so. a little bit of lemon verbena soap in it. Put the soap. Yes. <laughs> just get that. Like, like no, it's got the lemon. Ver- don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> just put lemon verbena soap in the water and it'll smell just like the gin. Actually, probably better. Yeah, so. honestly, because it won't smell like Christmas. Ugh. You think gin smells like Christmas? I think it, it smells, smells like, like juniper, so it's like not piney. Just, ugh, I don't like. It's, yeah, it's, it's just like ugh. it's nasty. Ugh. I don't like it. My next story is science news. This is from SciTechDaily.com. So take it with a grain of salt, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking okay. of salt, the headline is turning seawater into fuel. With a low-cost catalyst. Whoa. Yeah. That's cool sounding. It's, right? I thought it sounded cool, too. <laughs> That's why I brought it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> University of Rochester Chemical Engineers, in collaboration with researchers at the Naval Research Labor- uh, Laboratory, <laughs> laboratory. Uh, <laughs> yes. the, the, we have to always call it laboratory now. <laughs> the University of Pittsburgh and Oxion Energy have demonstrated that a potassium-promoted molybdenum Carbide catalyst efficiently Whoa. and reliably converts carbon dioxide to carbon monoxide, a critical step in turning seawater into fuel. 
if you didn't know what most of those words meant, neither did I. <laughs> and I have nothing to offer you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like sitting here with like my eyes wide open, like malig- malignum. 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 It's that like MD chem- or MB chemical. I don't know. Oh. Whatever its chemical symbol is. Yeah. I'm not um, familiar with that one if- that much. <laughs> Nor am I. Uh, if Navy ships could create their own fuel from the seawater they travel through, they could remain in continuous operation. That'd be amazing! So, yeah, which is pretty sweet. Uh, or just, I guess, ships in general, but you can see why the Navy would be interested in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than a few nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and submarines, most Navy ships must periodically align themselves alongside tanker ships to replenish their fuel oil, which can be difficult in rough weather. Uh, So this is obviously something they want to do. In 2014, a naval research laboratory team team, announced it had used a catalytic converter to extract carbon dioxide and hydrogen from seawater and then converted the gases into liquid hydrocarbons at a 92% efficiency rate. So that happened in 2014. Since then, the focus has been on increasing the efficiency of the process and scaling it up to produce fuel in sufficient quantities. So a lot of the times these catalysts like involve really expensive like semi-precious metals hmm. and this one doesn't. Ooh. Um so it's like possible to actually maybe scale it up for like like to an industrial scale to awesome. to use it. Um the carbon dioxide extracted from seawater is extremely difficult to convert directly into liquid hydrocarbons with existing methods. So it's necessary to first convert it into carbon monoxide, and then the carbon monoxide can be converted into liquid hydrocarbons. So that's why this is an important step in the process. Um, the article itself has a lot more technical terms and like what the actual processes are called for converting the things. I yeah. chose to exclude them because I do not know what they that's mean. Okay. And I, could not, I could not explain them. Um, Chemistry was never my strong suit. Yeah, I I took it because I had to. (laughs) (laughs) Like first freshman year of college, and then said bye and never never looked back. Um, Now I only deal with computers. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, this sounds really cool. Seems like it has a lot of practical applications. Oh yeah, like being able to use seawater as fuel for ships, but even just in general. If that's an option of something we can do, they're also mm-hmm. investigating whether the similar process could be used, like to convert the carbon dioxide that's given off by fossil fuel buildings. Um, oh, to like convert that'd be it awesome. into something that could then be like repurposed as fuel. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, like reduce that those emissions, yes. and then also have a new power source. Seems neat. Um. Okay, I have two comments. Okay, so far, one. Well, that's all I had to say. So okay. <laughs> Uh, one, if they are able to make this really efficient sooner than they can make the process of just like desalination of seawater really efficient, I'll be a little bit sad because I feel like that is more of a like saving humanity type of activity versus like help the army type of activity. But you know, they both are really awesome and useful things. It, right. Like you're saying, in just everyday life applications. Because anyway, it does so. sound like a potentially clean energy source as well. Right. But we Which also is important. do need clean water. We also for do humanity need water. to survive because we don't do well without that. So that's just interesting yeah. to me. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but, but yeah. I mean, people are definitely working on desalinating seawater too. Mm-hmm. I just haven't like necessarily heard anything in a long time about somebody making like a breakthrough on making it more efficient because i've always just heard that it's like not really efficient not really practical like the way that they know how to do it now Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, that was my first thought. Second thought is I did not know aircraft carriers were powered by nuclear power. Some of them are. But yeah. They have a nuclear reactor on there? Yes. That's ins- that's like <laughs> Wait, have you never heard really? of like a nuclear submarine? Oh, that's what that means. That's what that means. Yeah, they're not like <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought it meant like I don't know what I thought that meant. I thought it meant they had like a nuclear missile on them or something. I don't know why that's what I, that my it? mind jumped to. That's probably... This is like my complete ignorance on the subject, but like, how would they launch that? <laughs> like, a, <laughs> like, I thought it was some type of like weapon. I thought that's what that meant. I'm I thought nuclear sub- submarine meant like some type of weapon they had on the submarine. I don't know anything about weapons, I need to know this right now. But nuclear I just did never... I mean, that makes sense, though, because... The a air- nuclear submarine is a submarine powered by a nuclear reactor. Okay. Okay. So, yes. Great. That. That clears that up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Aircraft carriers are just, like, so ginormous, and they just, like, are out in the ocean. And I've never thought about, like, how do they fuel it? How do they power it? I just never thought about it. Yes. But I always thought that, like, nuclear reactors have... They need, like, a very large facility to, like, maintain safe protocols and stuff. And it just amazes not. me that they're able to, like do that on a sh- on a ship oh and apparently because it's independent of air that allows them to like stay underwater like forever if they need to i mean obviously not actually because there's people on there and they would need to restock it but well oh yeah yeah because a nuclear reactor doesn't require any like it has everything it's need. if it's fully contained it has everything it needs to just be creating energy for like a very 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 very, very long time that's so. I'm sorry. I'm like reading a Wikipedia article in the middle of this, but this On is nuclear so submarines? fascinating. <laughs> yeah, they can go like really far and really fast, apparently. Oh, wow. Well, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, I've never like read about nuclear submarines. Like, what does that actually mean? I yeah. have heard of them, but I never thought well, about it. I've heard it. stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, well, that cleared that up for me, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's super awesome. Can you imagine if, like, we just never needed to make gasoline ever again? That'd be pretty great. Or we didn't need oil or nickel. We just could use the seawater. Yeah. Especially when the sea levels rise and everything's underwater. Yeah, because we're only also, like, with boats. if we convert enough seawater to fuel, it'll combat the rising sea level. Like, we'll make it go down. <laughs> right? <laughs> So that's also good for the environment. This is just a win-win. It's it's only good. My next story is animal news. This is from smithsonianmag.com. The headline is, Hummingbirds learn to count to find their favorite flowers. Sounds adorable. It is. New research suggests that wild hummingbirds can keep count as they forage and use their counts to keep track of the sweetest flowers. The new paper, published on July 8th in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, I don't know if we've talked about that journal before. But wait, uh, is it just the letter B? Yeah. Is there a, is <laughs> it's there the an letter a? B. Is there an There's a probably also? an A. I don't oh. know. <laughs> that's the a journal this is the b journal so like maybe this is like lesser research or something I don't know. <laughs> b for birds or it's just about birds yeah I um don't know. They, they found that the male rufous hummingbird can learn which fake flower in a sequence holds a nectar-like syrup so um the researchers set up 
this like setup of fake flowers with like 10 flowers in a row and only one of them actually had syrup in it. And then they would um, like train wild hummingbirds to like come to that spot and like keep and by train. Okay. So basically this type of hummingbird is like territorial. So they would like put them out and then like wait until a hummingbird decided that was like their territory basically. So that was their like training. And so they would leave these like fake flowers there and it would keep coming back to the one that had the nectar in it. And then they would move around like the position of like the other flowers that didn't have it. And it still knew where the one with the nectar was. And then they like switched which one had the nectar in it and then did kind of the same thing. Like, so they did, it was like, okay, now the the one at the beginning of the line has it. Okay. Now the second one has it. And they kept switching it around. Now one in the middle has it. And they kept kind of like switching it around and they just like knew to just go straight to the, the one with the nectar and, um, apparently, like, they couldn't just, like, smell where the nectar was, which, because that was my first thought. That's of, what, like, yeah, that was what well, I was Aren't they just, just smelling thinking. where it is? They didn't really, like, go into that, but they seemed pretty sure it was because they were counting it, or they, like, knew, they could, like, tell, they could remember, like, where it was in the flowers, mm-hmm. or even even after they, like, moved things around or whatever. And apparently that's significant, because... <laughs> Birds, I don't know. They weren't expecting them to like remember like that. Like yeah. they, you, they. I think the expectation was that they just go and they're just kind of like going to keep testing them until they find one. Until you know what find, I mean? Yeah. But instead, they're able to like be like one, two, three. Oh, there you are. Yeah. Then... Right. Huh. Okay. So sometimes the birds made mistakes and they would like go to an empty one first, like next to the one that actually had it. Um, so they can count, but they're not good at it. <laughs> So, yeah, so they were, like, and they noted that they erred on the side of, okay, so, like, in the the round where the fourth flower had it in it, they would sometimes go to the third one. And they said, like, well, that's probably because that one used to have it in there. Okay. So they remembered, but maybe they, like, forgot it was in the, I don't know, but they were just, Uh like, they just go straight to where it is, and they don't have to, like, try looking the other ones, so. And now it's supposed to tell us something about hummingbird memory and how it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm just like not that impressed. <laughs> well, so <laughs> it just sounds now so that horrible. I actually like, like talked through this, I feel like it's very like anticlimactic. But well, the reason like, it- the fact that they didn't say that oh they just smell the nectar on it because that seems like the obvious thing yeah but, but i don't know they must have controlled for that because it was, it was scentless nectar <laughs> i don't know but i yeah they, i i'm gonna just assume that they did some type of control for that because it's really obvious but what this reminded me of like the reason i brought it is because it's reminded me of stuff i've read in the past about where they've done experiments with um mice like one the one that i'm thinking of where they showed that like they couldn't they, okay, animals have a, a memory, but they can only remember, like, certain a certain level of complexity of things. Mm-hmm. So, like, this one study, they showed that, like, a mouse could remember that, like, the food is behind the blue wall in, like, a maze or whatever. Okay. But they couldn't remember something like the food is to the left of the blue wall versus the right. Like, oh. it's anything that's, like... Two degrees Yes, of like thinking. a second degree <laughs> of thinking. Like, they couldn't do it. Uh-huh. Which I thought was just, like, really interesting. Like, oh, like, why is that so much harder than the other one? 
and I think that that was kind of the point of what they're doing these experiments with these birds to see like, what can they remember? Mm-hmm. And so now they have to put the flowers behind a blue wall. Right. And then see if they figured that out. And if they figure out like, it's not always number three, it's the one behind the blue wall. And hopefully they control for the fact that maybe they can smell things like blue. <laughs> My next story is space news. This is from USA Today. Universe is 13.8 billion years old, scientists confirm. They just know how old it is now? Yep, like, they exactly? Just, they, well, scientists confirmed it. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> did, I, did I stutter? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the universe is about 13.8 billion years old, according to new research recently published by an international team of astrophysicists. Well, you know... About 13.8. I mean, what's 0.8 billion? That's a pretty big uh, margin of error. It's, so yeah. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Maybe they just smelled how old it was. Probably. Um, while this estimate of the age of the universe had been known before, in recent years, other scientific measure- measurements had suggested instead that the universe may be hundreds of millions of years younger than this. But basically, they're like, no. <laughs> it's this old estimate, actually. Uh, okay. The scientists studied an image of the oldest light in the universe to confirm its age. This light, the afterglow of the Big Bang, is known as the Cosmic Microwave Background, which is a pretty cool name, and marks a time 380,000 years after the universe's birth with when uh, protons and electrons form, uh, joined to form the first atoms. Ooh. So, yeah, pretty exciting stuff. Uh, Obtaining the best image of the infant universe helps scientists better understand the origins of the universe, how we got to where we are on Earth, where we are going, how the universe may end, and when that ending may occur. What? I don't know. This seemed like a lot of conclusions to draw from (laughs) an old picture. Well, not an old, (laughs) a new picture of old. It's not important. Uh, (laughs) Here's a quote. (laughs) We are restoring the baby photo that was in quotes, of the universe to its original condition, eliminating the wear and tear of time and space that distorted the image. So apparently they had this photo and they were just like processing it in such a way to remove some of this noise, which is how they were able to like draw a more solid conclusion on the age of the universe from it. Uh, This was explained by Stony Brook astrophysicist uh, Nilima Segal, a co-author on the paper's only by seeing the sharper baby photo or image of the universe can we more fully understand how our universe was born. Um, but yeah, so basically they were able to like do measurements from this photo of the oldest light in the universe and conclude 13.8 billion years, which is pretty old, if you think about it. Human humans have been wow. around for like 6,000. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Astrophysics is just like all, everything is over my head, like all the time. I, I know, I, yeah, I, sure. I, I'm just like, yeah, just, you have to just like believe put, them. Because like, right, because like, okay. why would I know this? I, they showed like a picture of it and it looks just, it just looks like a bunch of squiggles to me. I'm just like, I don't know, sure. Yeah, yeah. 13.8 <laughs> seems good. Uh, yeah. Who am I to argue because with? They're you? like, we think we might know when the universe will end. Like, you do? Do like, you? What? Is it soon? How? Probably not. Next year. Yeah, I don't think it's... 
Hopefully. Well, it, you um, know, it's 2020, so it's the yeah, <laughs> apocalypse now. Seems uh, right. Like, maybe by the end of this year, even. Um, no, probably <laughs> the sun, the sun is going to explode, I think, before the universe yeah. ends. So right. we, we won't be around to see it. Right. Hum, like, humankind. Humans won't. Yeah, we'll be long gone. All right, it's time for breaking news. The part of the show where Anthony and I look for stories that just happened today or were just posted today, and we read them to you on the fly. Malibinum. Ready, set, Go! go! Okay, I found this on UPI. The headline is, Company Seeks Wine Taster to Make Over $300 Drinking Wine. All right, where do I sign up? Yeah, I'm ready let's to go. do this. Bye. A, We're a done. British? The podcast is over. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to go do this now. It's $300. You're just done with wine. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a, a British wine distributor is seeking a wine taster to get paid more than $300 to sample and review some of the finest organic summer wines. Vintage Roots, a merchant specializing in organic wines, said the chosen taster will be sent bottles of various summer wines and will be asked to review the beverages for the company's website. Interested wine aficionados are being asked to follow the company's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages and tag them in a photo showing the applicant enjoying a glass of wine with certain hashtags. As like an that's like the application, I guess, to do okay. this. Okay. <laughs> Entries are open through August 31st. That doesn't seem like a good way to find somebody to write reviews. Mm, no. Because that doesn't require them to write anything for you. Maybe they want to see what you write in like your Facebook post. Mm, that would be... But they're not specifying that. Yeah. Well, let's go to the website where they're advertising this. in this case, this. all you need is some social media accounts and access to wine, and you can just right. apply for this. Let's see what it says. Do you dream of spending your summer sipping wine in the garden? Yes. Do you consider yourself a wine connoisseur? Not really. If this sounds like you, we may just have the perfect job for you. Ba-da-ba-ba, going down the website. All you, oh, there's an application form. Okay, the other article oh. did not mention. There's an application form, and also you, but actually to enter the competition, you have to do the social media thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What? I, that's very strange. It sounds like they're actually using this as like a social media marketing more than anything else. But yeah, you have to Sneaky. fill out an application. I didn't even think of that. They're just getting people to spread their hashtags. Yeah, they're just getting the hashtags are summer wine taster and come wine with me. Oh, well. But you have to have pictures of not their wine, I guess, but just any wine, I guess. Okay, so maybe, if, but, uh, maybe oh. if, if it is sneaky, they're not doing a very good job of being sneaky. But you have to tag at Vintage Roots. Oh, there it is. That's what it is. <laughs> Figured it out. That's what it is. Solved it. So this is just a sneaky marketing campaign. It's another one for the Knickknack News Mystery Vault. Lock it up. We solved it. Also, they have a banner at the top of their website that says they have increased demand right now. Which now I'm like, is that just fake? Is that just a ploy? Increased like, demand for what? Their wines. Well, it is a pandemic so yeah, that's true probably a lot of people ordering wine to their <laughs> so house say, uh, <laughs> yours, in, yours, yeah. yours truly included <laughs> yeah okay well anyway they actually are gonna pay somebody 300 bucks to do this so all right <laughs> we can still ensure <laughs> if we want <laughs> all right i found this on cnn a michigan man won two million dollars after a gas station clerk gave him the wrong lottery ticket 
What? So it was all an accident? It was an accident that he won $2 million. Uh, It was meant to be. Yeah, so I don't know why this is relevant, but the winner who chose not to be identified stopped at the station in the Detroit suburb of East Point because he needed to change... He needed change to put air in the tires of his wife's truck. So now you Hmm. know that. Uh, I went in to get change and asked for a $10 Lucky 7's ticket. The clerk handed me the $20 ticket by mistake. He offered to exchange it for me, but something told me to keep it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure glad I did. I don't know what told him, but keep listening to whatever that was. Voice in your head or (laughs) rabbit who talks or something. I don't know. Those are the two options. A rabbit who talks. I don't know. Maybe he walked out the door and a rabbit was like, keep it. Or it was a person in a rabbit suit. That's also incredibly likely. Um, yeah. He says he plans to use the money to buy a new house and will save the rest, which seems very responsible. Yeah, very responsible. And very good. Yeah, that's literally all there is to the story. But can you imagine if you, like, somebody handed you the thing you yeah. didn't ask for and you're just like, well. <laughs> I guess I'll keep this. I guess I'll keep this. And then. Win $2 million. $2 million. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty, amazing. That's pretty lucky. Oh, winning the lottery is so rare. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday, and as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. You can subscribe to Knickknack News on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash knickknacknews and on Twitter at, at knickknacknews. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye.